Welcome to Uncorked, another podcast brought to you by Team Corker. I am so excited that we're back on the cast for the fall of 2019. (laughs) And I'm here today with a special guest currently based in Victoria. Nikki is known as a decolonizing educator, yet she quickly informed me there's so much more than simply that. And that alone is enormous. So Nikki, welcome to the podcast. So we know there's so much more to you than being a decolonizing educator, and yet it is, it, it's obviously very important work that you're doing. So can you tell us how you spend your days right now and the many titles that you have before we dive, dive into the work of decolonization? For sure. So I, I think as part of being an Indigenous person, part of our worldview is that all things are interconnected, and I definitely feel as though all the things I do are interconnected and really feed into the work that I do as a decolonial educator. I also work in media, uh, both creating documentary uh, media content as well as educational media content, and then designing programming that support and foster emerging Indigenous filmmakers. I've also been a wilderness guide and ecological educator for almost 12 years now, so I love to do land-based work, both working with um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people about how to reconnect themselves to the land and simultaneously heal both themselves and the landscapes that they live on. And then I've also had the privilege to be an environmental spokesperson for the past three years, most recently for the David Suzuki Foundation. And I'm also completing my PhD that is looking at immersive visual media and Indigenous ontology. And if that doesn't make all of us feel like zero contribution to society, I don't know what possibly could. <laughs> but I, I say that with incredible respect, and I'm so grateful that you've chosen to take all of this on in life. And it's no, it's no small feat, it's no small task. And what I appreciate, I mean, even from your TEDx talk, which is phenomenal, and we'll make sure to link to that below, you know, be it TEDx or media, the education factor is enormous, and it's so needed right now maybe more than ever. I know that from your TEDx talk, one thing I really took away was, I can't believe that residential schools only closed in 1996. Yeah, that's, I, I don't think that it's accidental that most Canadians don't know that. Oh, gosh. I, yeah. Okay, wait, but you just said that you have also been working on, from a land perspective, a sustainability perspective with David Suzuki as, you know, one, one aspect of your work. Tell, tell me what your contribution is and what you're learning right now in that. Yeah, so that's, I'm no longer in that role, though I'm still very closely aligned with the David Suzuki Foundation. But for two and a bit years, I had the privilege of being their queen of green, which meant that I was in charge of media creation, uh, digital media curation, outreach, and growth to really offer solutions for daily sustainability. And I worked really hard in that role to start to bridge gaps um, between the mainstream environmental movement and a more diverse Indigenous and POC uh, way of being, because for so long, mainstream environmentalism has been a very uh, white and privileged space. And I really wanted to use my time with the foundation to start to dismantle that and build bridges between frontline communities who are almost always at the forefront of environmental impact Mm -hmm. and strategies for sustainability. Wow. 
What can you share with us that you learned or rather maybe implemented or suggested in terms of solutions? Oh man, do you want the truth? (laughs) I really do. Okay. Well, to be totally honest, I, what I really learned was that daily and individual strategies for sustainability, I think are really necessary for our individual psyches and our individual well-being, so that we feel as though we have a level of autonomy and ability to contribute to a more sustainable way of being. However, I think overall it's a strategy of distraction and putting the onus on individuals for eliminating single-use plastics for their daily lives or buying an electric car ultimately is an unreasonable strategy for change given what we're looking at in terms of exponentially increasing climate change impacts. So ultimately, our energies would be much better spent individually moving into collectives to put significant pressure on systemic policy that really attacks environmental polluters at the heart of the source. Gulp. Yeah, I thought you might say that. I was like, I feel so good about myself eliminating <laughs> plastic, and that does only that makes me feel good about myself. And but it, that's really valuable as well. Like, it's it's really valuable for me to on a daily basis feel as though even with my my actions, like I think that's important for all of us to do so that we can maintain our hope and our sense mm-hmm. of contribution. But ultimately where we really need to strategically be directing our energy is to those big systems and governmental policies and corporations who are the main contributors to what we see really detrimentally impacting our planet. Yeah, it's enough said. It's so true. And it's, it's almost one of these political fights of like, do we have it in us? And it feels like it's so big and deep and sometimes our small actions feel more dare I say, sustainable or doable. Yet what we're seeing is that it's just not enough. And that's, that's a real thing. Um, You mentioned about how this relates back to the land and our relationship with the land and, you know, indigenous people and their relationship with these sorts of things. What can you tell me about, about that? Yeah. So just like I said, most indigenous worldviews really teach that all things are interconnected. Um, And so you can't impact one part of the system without impacting all parts of it. And it's not accidental that I've chosen to focus a lot of the educational work that I do on decolonization, because I truly believe that the worldviews and economic systems that were enacted as part of a colonial project of nation building are the root and the crux of why we're globally facing potentially catastrophic climate change impacts and a completely unsustainable and viable not only environmental system, but economic and social system as well. And so that's why the name of my TED talk is Decolonization is for Everyone, because I think for a lot of people, decolonization seems like something that applies or is only relative to Indigenous people, when Mm -hmm. in fact we're all, we're all products of this system and every part of our society and daily lives has been touched by colonial worldviews and these worldviews are inherently violent and unsustainable and my work is really committed to not just healing one group of people but collectively bringing people together so we can all heal each other and ourselves. Gosh you mentioned in your TED talk that we're paralyzed with guilt or shame and that history is not your fault, but it is our responsibility. And what can you, what can you, how can you elaborate rather on that? And, and again, I mean, it's like, whether it's daily sustainable actions or 
the work of decolonization? What can we learn there? So, I mean, I think things have changed so much um, with the advent of the internet and our smartphones and our just general overall wiredness. Whereas maybe, you know, 15 years or 20 years ago, people truly lived in the dark about their history and their identity and their nation. Whereas now I think the majority of people, whether it's not at the forefront of their mind, it's at the precipice. And there's an understanding that they're living on occupied and unceded territories, that people were subject to genocide in order for settlers to occupy land. And so I find with a lot of the work that I do and a lot of the people that I work with, they've been kind of living with this anxiety of understanding that as relative truth, but not knowing how to delve into it and also having fear of really jumping into that because it is a really painful disillusionment and it really destabilizes a sense of identity. If you've always thought of yourself as a, you know, friendly Canadian who <laughs> is into multiculturalism and inclusivity, uh, it can be very painful to realize that you're part of a nation that was stealing children from their families for over a hundred years and engaging in this practice up until 1996. Gosh. I want to pause and ask and ask you to explain what a decolonization educator means and, and what does that mean to you and your work? Because there's one aspect of education, but I think it goes beyond just telling us that, by the way, residential schools were still in existence until 1996. For sure. I um, thought really long and hard, you know, when I was beginning my academic career about what my ultimate objective was. And ultimately, the answer to that question was that if I wasn't going to do work that was actively going to help to heal the world, then there was no point in doing it. And so with the decolonization work that I do specifically, um, it's really a two-sided coin. One part is education and information, and the other part is an, an invitation for, for healing and for people to start to locate themselves within a web of relationships and find points of agency and empowerment to begin to enact healing and the dismantling of harmful systems in their own life and work. Mm. Wow. And when you say that, um, I mean, first of all, let's just pause and acknowledge that you are choosing to do such incredible work in the world. And I know that as a recruiter, I sit and think, how many people feel, you know, unattached to their work and are just looking for what's next and you seem so committed to your work and it's not a matter about looking for what's next, but rather looking for where you can make your next impact and it's enormous. Yeah, I don't talk to people that care that much. Like it's really it's really commendable. So thank you. <laughs> You've chosen a noble profession, you've chosen a noble, a noble course of how to spend your days. And I'm curious about the types of people that you're engaging in this work with. Who's, who's interested in hearing from you and who are you interested in talking to about this? So I just want to be really transparent about the fact that this is work that I feel really called to do and I'm really passionate about and I'm an entirely imperfect person. <laughs> and so, yes, I really believe in my work and, you know, some days my productivity is not where I want it to be. And some days I feel really sad about the state of the world and it's hard to get out of bed. And so I just want to make it really clear to you and to anyone who's listening that I know that most of us are really just doing our best and trying to find the points of opportunity within which we can give our gifts to the world. So let's just pause and acknowledge that 
that's everyone. And so even choosing a noble career as you have on purpose, some days are really tough. And I love that you acknowledge that because it's real for all of us. And it doesn't matter how full of purpose or not. In fact, with such purpose comes great responsibility that can keep you in bed. I'm sure of it. And <laughs> it can be rather depressing. It must be, you know, how do we, how do we change something that's so deeply rooted and you're out to, to do that. So, yeah. But that leads yeah. into your next question as well, which is who, who is seeking out this work? And that is a point of huge hope and restored faith and humanity for me because so many people are currently reaching out and seeking this work. Everyone from massive telecommunications companies to environmental organizations to luxury resorts and advertising companies have sought me out to work with them. And so, and, and so many individuals as well, when I tell them about the work that I do, really want an opportunity to be a part of it. And that really tells me that right now, I think on a collective level, we've come to a place in our society where people are, are ready to start having these conversations and, you know, are conscious that there's something within themselves that they need to resolve. Absolutely. Now, I'm mindful that you're based in Victoria. Where were you born, Nikki? Or where do you relate to? I was born in Victoria. This is no, definitely okay. the place that I um, relate to most. I am uh, Papil Maya on my dad's side. So we're from the Cuscatlan region of Central America. Um, but my mom came back to Canada to have me. And then I spent my early childhood moving all around uh, Mayan territory in, in Guatemala and El Salvador and Mexico because there was a genocide and war going on there. And my parents were both very involved in trying to protect the land and the people. Wow. Incredible. I ask because if you follow Nikki on Instagram, we'll make sure that link is below as well. It looks like you were either just in Hawaii or have some ties to what's going on on Mauna Kea on the big island. And undeniably, I have a big aloha heart. And so I wanted to hear your perspective on what's happening there and your work and contribution. Yeah, I mean, what is happening on Mauna Kea right now, I believe it's one of the most significant Indigenous land defense movements to take place in our lifetimes. Yeah, And I do have connections to the people of Hawaii because I've been working with them um, with, in documentary projects and in my academic work over the last six years. And so when I found out that construction was going to be restarted on the mountain, I felt like I needed to go and help in any way that I could. And so I used my connections in media and networks in media to try and amplify what's going on there. But there's no way in any way, shape or form, I can say that I, you know, what Mauna Kea is doing right now is giving so much to the world. And I feel so incredibly grateful that I was able to be there and was welcomed there and got to witness what I did witness because the movement that is being carried out on the base of the world's tallest mountain is being guided by Aloha, just as you mm. For people that might not know what's going on or what has started, yeah. this, can you just provide a little bit of background or context? Because what you're saying is so beautiful. And especially if you, for the people that are listening that might not know. Absolutely. So the movement that's happening at Mauna Kea right now is happening around the desired construction of the world's largest telescope, uh, known as the 30 meter telescope. And it would be about the sizes of five football fields across and be built 18 stories up and nine stories down. For people who don't know much about Hawaiian culture, Mauna Kea is 
the birthplace of Hawaiian genealogy and in their stories, it's where the Sky Father and Earth Mother met. And so it's the starting place of the Hawaiian people. And so the mountain itself is an incredibly sacred place, which could be compared to Christian's Garden of Eden. And people since time immemorial have been maintaining altars, ceremonies, burials, and even putting babies' umbilical cords in the aquifer that's at the top of the mountain. So this is pretty much as sacred land as you can imagine. And on top of that, which is really important for people to know, which many people don't know, Hawaii was a sovereign nation, an internationally recognized independent kingdom prior to the U.S. occupation. So for Hawaiian people, for Native Hawaiian people, they truly see themselves as an occupied territory. And the majority of use of the Hawaiian islands outside of tourism for mainland Americans has been military use and testing. So all throughout Hawaii, these islands are being actively bombed as target practice for the U.S. military. So there's just been such a 126 years of grievances and injustice against the Hawaiian people and the land. And ultimately, this telescope that's meant to desecrate the top of the most sacred mountain to the Hawaiian people has become the final stand where people are really coming together to say absolutely not. Mm, Wow. And when or how will we know about the actions? Like I know that you know, everyone's taking a stand and it's, it does feel like it's a stand in the name of peace and love and aloha, yet is it going to stop construction? That's a really good question. And I, I really hope that the world does watch and offer as much support as they possibly can to the Hawaiian people. A lot of people don't know that there's 20 Canadian universities who are invested in the telescope and the Canadian government has given $250 million to the construction of the telescopes. And it was designed actually in Port Coquitlam by Guy Nelson, who owns Dynamic Structures. So Canadians are definitely culpable (laughs) and have a say and have ways to put pressure on the Canadian government and universities as well as the the company that designed the telescope. But the best way I would say to stay tuned into what's going on is to follow Puhulu Hulu on Instagram. And so that's just at P-U-U-H-U-L-U-H-U-L-U. And I can give you the link afterwards to include on the podcast so people can click on it. Oh gosh, I just got goosebumps because I feel like we're, I mean, by the time this podcast goes live, it'll be about a month old news, but we're in the impact of hearing about the support of of equinox and trump movements and it just make it hurts my heart that canadians are supporting this because we i would love to think that we we know better and we know to do better and it's really wonderful that you're illuminating the light of the truth which is apparently we don't <laughs> and we consider hawaii this great place to go vacation and yet we're totally doing so on borrowed land and don't ruin that beautiful mountain. Stop it. (laughs) I have a lot of faith that the protectors and Kumu and Kapuna who are on the mountain right now and all the the youth and emerging leaders who are there to support them um, will be successful in that. But Mm -hmm. I, but I also know that, you know, for people who, have care and compassion and love for the land, aloha aina, we all need to do our parts as well. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, I think we could go on. And what I love is that we can certainly dive deeper into your work. We can hear so much. Your TEDx talk is phenomenal. And I really appreciate what you're sharing with us via Instagram because all of it is so important. And our time is up and this is how it happens. It's always feels too short. So we wrap every podcast with our favorite question at Team Porker. And that is, Nikki, what is currently making your heart beat faster? My heart beats fast when I get to talk to people who are committing their passion and their gifts to doing work that heals the world. And being at Mauna Kea recently was like a heart explosion because I've never seen so many people in a state of aloha aina and commitment to one another and their landscape and to healing the world overall with love. Um, so, but I, just to say, I know that there are so many other movements like that on every continent of the earth, Onistoten and Gwetmuk and all the things that are happening here in BC to prevent the passage of the Trans Mountain Pipeline and all the people who are working to heal our forests and our oceans. So I'm just so grateful to all those people. And I really am glad that my work can be part of it as well. Enough said. We're so glad your heart beats for it, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you.